0: Today, we have something of a nostalgic story. It's a story about a show that revolutionized children's television and what that meant for the Arab world. Because remarkable things can happen when people pledge allegiance to something bigger than themselves, like affect entire generations of kids. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination is the The streets lost culture. (laughs) And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Our story today starts with Ammar.
1: My name is uh, Ammar Al-Sobban. Ammar Idrus Al-Sobban. Aydrous is my father, obviously. Well, for me, growing up, I didn't really uh, like to go out a lot. I was always either by myself playing with something. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was more of an introvert.
0: Ammar is originally from Mecca, but he grew up in Jeddah. And he says when he was young, he wasn't really like the other kids.
1: I mean, all the boys wanted to play soccer. I didn't want to play soccer. I was always either by myself playing with something or watching television. Television was a big chunk of my life.
0: And this was the 80s, so...
1: Ghostbusters is like a franchise that changed my life. I I I was crazy about He-Man for a big chunk of the 80s.
2: Fabulous Secret Powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, <laughs> "By the power of Grayskull!"
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I never failed to keep myself entertained. And even when I never had something, I always made something. If I see a toy or um something on a cartoon and I don't have it, I I figure out a way to make it out of cardboard or paper or plastic or something.
0: Now, as Ammar is growing up watching TV, there was one show in particular that had a really big effect on him. (laughs) Or the Arabic Sesame Streets.
1: I mean I, I, I started watching way before I can remember and my mom used to sit with us like Saturday mornings and uh, before school and and just watch Sesame Street I remember when I was like four years old the first, I think the first thing that I ever wanted to be when I grow up is either to be like a puppet, a puppet character, or a cartoon character, which you realize eventually that that's impossible because they're not, not real. And I used to remember, like, uh, my only concern, like, well, I only wished that I could take the glass off the TV because I thought that was how I could go in and, and be in that world. And I felt like that was the only thing that's standing in my way, this class. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just the feeling that it gave me of, of anything is possible.
0: That feeling he got from watching the show, that feeling that anything was possible, that wasn't by accident. It was by design. But to understand that, we have to go back to Manhattan, New York, in the 1960s.
2: Well, the good news is that uh, I'm old enough at 66 to remember what children's television was like in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And
0: This is Michael Davis. He's an expert and author on the history of Sesame Streets.:
2: uh, it, it was a cavalcade of nonsense uh, for the most part.
0: So what he's saying is that in the 1950s and 60s in the United States, children's television was just basically one terrible show after the next.
2: Very little thought was given to the the quality of the content that was being consumed by kids like me who were sitting cross-legged in front of the television and watching cartoon characters hit each over the head with pants.
0: Shows like Tom and Jerry, or a show called Top Cat. But then all that changed. So it's because of this guy. Lloyd Morissette. Who's a social scientist and researcher.
2: Had a daughter, a young daughter. And she had a habit of crawling out of bed early in the morning on the weekends and and tiptoeing downstairs and uh, turning on the television at 6.30 in in the morning. And at that hour, there wasn't any programming. There was just a a, a test signal on the air accompanied by a terrible beep. Yet, she would sit there in front of the television waiting for the broadcast day to begin at 7 a.m. So Lloyd one day was watching this from the vantage point uh, upstairs, watching his daughter downstairs transfixed in front of the screen. And um, it just perplexed him as a scientist. Like, what is it about this medium that would inspire a child to leave uh, her warm bed and come down and sit and watch essentially nothing?
0: A few weeks later, Lloyd was invited to a dinner party in New York at the home of a television producer friend named Joan. Joan Gans Cooney. They'd been introduced through her cousin, who Lloyd had gone to middle school with. Who uh,
2: at the time was working in television in in New York. And after dinner, Lloyd told this story about his daughter, Sarah, and just said, you know, again, what is this? This is mysterious force this magnetic force that you know that television has on children and could it be used for a greater purpose and Joan said I I don't know if television could but I'd sure like to try and that really was the, the 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 moment that Sesame Street was conceived Joan and and Lloyd made for a very powerful duo. Uh, Joan was um, sort of driven by a vision and an urge to see whether television could assist preschool children. And together with Lloyd, they uh, started working on some kind of project that would result in An experiment.
0: This new show Joan Lloyd and a growing team put together was something revolutionary for its time. As journalist Norman Morris from The Atlantic put it, something huge is about to happen. Something so huge that it may well turn out to be the most ambitious experiment in children's television. Because it was the first time ever that people would treat children's TV as an opportunity to educate. So right at the start, they brought Jim Henson on board. He'd been making these funny TV commercials with his cast of puppets for nearly two decades. You'll know Jim as the voice of Kermit the Frog and Ernie, and he was also the creator of the entire Muppets cast, the cast of characters for Sesame Street.
2: And the characters within a year became ubiquitous in the United States. You couldn't go anywhere after about a year on the air without seeing uh, a Big Bird doll or an Ernie or a Bert doll in carriages and strollers.
0: Because it was more than just children's entertainment, Sesame Street was the first television program that would actually educate kids.
2: No other children's television program had a curriculum. Sesame Street was developed by educators and psychologists and children's literature experts and a group of people who came together uh, over a series of seminars held at Harvard University and in New York created a a real bona fide curriculum for the show, one that could be measured over time. So, you know, at, at that period of television history and cultural history, that was a first. This is a great example, Sesame Street, of what can happen when people sort of pledge allegiance to a cause, and the cause was trying to see if this experiment could assist children who were coming from homes where maybe they weren't being read to, maybe they didn't have a record player, or maybe they weren't getting the advantages that some other children were getting. They wanted to try to close that gap there was a real reason why the set of Sesame Street looked like Harlem, and that's because um, the, the, the founders concluded that if we hope to get the attention of, of children in, in, in Harlem and other areas of the country where uh, underprivileged children lived, l- let's make it look like a place where they lived. And I do think that it was one of the keys to success uh, in the early days for the audience. For the the children out in suburbia, uh, it brought them to a place that that they perhaps had never seen before, experienced before. Uh, Another big factor in the early days was, this was television's first integrated cast. There were African-American people and Hispanic people, white people, uh, you know, everyone, Playing on the street together—that was not by accident. They wanted to show a world where people got along. There was a universality to aspects of uh, Sesame Street, and I, I think it really began like to with buy this humor. Pie
3: right here.
2: You want to buy this pie? What the rhyme with buy the delicious? That's the pie. I'm here to buy. Wait, wait. Me know what rhyme with buy and is delicious and is in bakery? What's he talking about? It guy. Why? Um, ah. delicious. Ah, wait, hey, wait
0: a oh. <coughs> and that universality meant that within just a few months, countries from around the world wanted to bring Sesame Street to their children. Producers from Brazil, Iran, and Germany were reaching out wanting to make versions of the show in their countries. And that humor was translatable,
2: and everyone understood that within a year or two. So it it quite made sense that uh, Sesame Street could have a life outside the United States, and it did.
3: Illiteracy rates were quite high uh, in the GC back in the early 1970s. This is Dr.
0: Cairo Arafat. She's a children's education expert and the managing director at Bidaya Media, the production company that makes Iftahe Simsim. And the GCC is the cluster of Gulf countries. So Kuwait, Saudi, the UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and Yemen. With the more scattered
3: type of populations that they had in the region, smaller communities, I mean, they were very small communities. There was not a lot of schooling going on. The whole sector of media and entertainment was still very nascent in this area. Like, you know, GCC, there weren't a lot of production companies or production houses or broadcasts, or, you know, there was, it was very limited at that point in time. There was only like three channels anyways in the whole region and very few children's programs. They were trying to develop quickly educational programs for children. And one of the fastest ways they felt was to actually develop a, an early childhood program for children that could be watched at home by young children because the preschool sector was still fairly negligible at that point in time.
0: So in the late 70s, a group called the GCC Joint Program Production Institution had bought the rights to create an Arabic-language version of Sesame Street to be produced out of Kuwait. They began working with a team of educational experts to create a curriculum and set of characters that were relevant to an Arab audience. It was seen as a hugely successful pan-Arab collaboration of educators, writers, and artists from around the region. And by the time the show aired in 1979, they'd created a whole new set of characters, like a camel named the and a parrot named Masloon, designed using Syrian and Egyptian shadow puppet traditions. The American characters were Arabized, and so Cookie Monster became Ka'aki, Bert and Ernie became Badr and Enis, and Grover became Gargur. So they decided the show would be called Iftahe Simsim, which is this great sort of loop backwards and forwards in time. Iftahe Simsim, you may remember from your children's books, were the magic words Ali Baba spoke to get access to the treasures in the cave in A Thousand and One Nights, the collection of folk stories published in the Middle East in the 18th century. When Joan and her team back in New York were thinking what to call their new show, this series that would be a door to this new world of adventure for children, they thought of Open Sesame from A Thousand and One Nights. So they called it Sesame Street. When Sesame Street came to the Arab world 10 years later, it's like it sort of came home. So that's how it actually
3: got started. Um, They sent out a crew from Sesame that worked very closely with uh, the
0: Kuwaitis. Half of the show was the American version, dubbed in Arabic. The other half was locally produced, and in the same way that the producers on Sesame Street had tried to create a world that children could relate to and see themselves in, the Iftah Simpson producers built the aesthetics of the show to reflect the 22 Arab countries it was broadcast in. When you watch the intro sequence for the original show, it shows a group of kids running around, playing together, some of them wearing the keffiyeh or the thob, against a backdrop of markets and palm trees. At least 50% of the show was
3: locally produced, so they did get to see children who looked like them. The environment that they were playing in was very Arabic-looking. Uh, the actors were all, you know, Arabic. The language was all in Arabic.
0: The other half of the show was original Sesame Street
3: episodes dubbed in Arabic. They created beautiful music, really funny scripts, uh, Really talented cast of actors. Uh, very, it was a very well created show. And I think also what's beautiful about that era was there was an openness. People were interested in learning about other cultures. Back in that time, you didn't you didn't get ABC or CBS or any of those channels here, so they never saw anything called Sesame Street. So they they liked seeing from you know you know a segment maybe from Japan or a segment from the U.S. or a segment from wherever showing children of color. They it was actually filling a lot of
0: their curiosity. They wanted to learn more. The show tried to give children a better sense of their place in the world and to foster a sense of pride in their Arab heritage. Explaining the locations of cities and countries in the Middle East was an important part of the show, as were Arabic language lessons. And the way they taught all these lessons was not with a spoonful of medicine, like you would think of when you think of children's education, but with a spoonful of honey. In other words, they made it fun. In the
3: GCC countries, for example, there's a, particularly at that time, there was quite a heavy reliance on a lot of service providers or service workers from outside. And um, I think you had two levels or two different types of service workers. A lot of them were uh, those who were doing a lot of the more manual and menial type of jobs in the sense of house cleaning or street, environmental cleaning, those kind of jobs. And I think for many people, they wanted to protect the idea uh, that all of us are the same. We all, you know, whether our job is, you know, an x-ray specialist or whether you're cleaning the streets, we're all one. That was something you saw on the show, this respect for everyone. Also the idea that giving children a voice you know, we do live in a, in a fairly patriarchal society, and you know, you always listen to your elders, and you're also always right. This is a show that was all about really the Muppets and about kids, and that it's okay to make mistakes, that it's okay to say your opinion. So, uh, the Iftahe Simpson show really played a, a key educational role. It was, you know, children would just be waiting to get home from school just to watch that show. Children like little Ammar
0: growing up in Jeddah.
1: Well, I loved Ernie, I loved Cookie Monster, I liked Grover, because they were the silliest always. I mean, I feel like my parents raised me and the Muppets raised me as as well at the same time. I used to mimic a lot of the jokes and, and the stuff that I used to see from the Muppets and of course drove everybody around me crazy but i just felt good when when i laughed and felt good when i made other other people laugh
0: ammar says that growing up in saudi he found that there were a lot of rules and expectations of him that he struggled with
1: so when you go anywhere you have to really conduct yourself in a respectable manner and you have to be respectful to other people and you have to be proper and you have to be polite and i always felt more drawn to the craziness and the silliness and the nonconformity and chaos. And I found that in the cartoons. I found that in the Muppets.
0: But this was the late 80s. And after airing for 10 years to really popular reception across 22 Arab states, Iftah came to an abrupt stop in 1990 with the beginning of the Gulf War.
2: On the morning of August 2nd, thousands of people in Kuwait
3: City woke up to war.
1: Iraq's army shocked the world by invading its neighbor, Kuwait.
3: War is ugly wherever it happens. This is Dr. Cairo again. Uh, when Kuwait was invaded, there was, there was a lot of destruction. Much, A large part of the Kuwait City was actually destroyed. And one of the places that was destroyed was the production house. You know, the Muppets, the walk-arounds and everything, they were destroyed.
0: In the aftermath of the war and the forced ending of the show, the kids who grew up watching Sim* would watch VHS tape recordings of old episodes. And they eventually grew out of that too. The impact the show had, though, on kids like Amor, stuck. He would never forget sitting in front of the TV, mimicking the voices and characters of his favorite Muppet, Gargur. One day, he still wanted to be him.
1: Growing up in a society that really values certain professions, uh, medicine or engineering or, you know, law or stuff like that, you don't really see a lot of different options for you to go to. And when I graduated from, from high school, I was really uh, just... I just felt lost because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I had to go to college. There wasn't any other options. And of course, my parents were devastated. And, 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 I, and I can see now how heartbroken they were because they, they, they're college professors and then one of their sons doesn't want to go to college. They have PhDs and I don't even want a bachelor's degree.
0: In the end, Ammar's uncle suggested he try architecture school since he always loved to draw and build things with his hands.
1: And when I saw the brochure and everything, I said, you know what, this is what I want to do.
0: So he enrolled in architecture school.
1: Studied and graduated.
0: And started working at an architecture firm.
1: And I worked there for 12 years.
0: And even though his life had taken a turn from his childhood dream of becoming Gargur, it's like the universe would remind him of that dream still.
1: One of my business trips was in New York, and I was just walking. I came across a toy store, and the toy store had a A customized puppet section where you can customize and make your own Muppet. And I just went crazy and it's like I made two of them. And when I came back, I was like, okay, now I have my own puppets. I need to do something.
0: Which, as fun as that was for him playing with puppets, it was a child's pipe dream. He was an architect now, moving his way up the corporate ladder. He got married to the love of his life. They had three kids. His life was going in the direction it was expected of him. But
1: I was at the time, I was just like a zombie going to work, coming back from work. Don't want to wake up in the morning. Don't want to go. Don't want to do anything. Just lost all hope in life. And in that corporate world, I felt chained. I was just dead inside. And I wasn't myself, honestly, also. I mean, I had to dress up in suits or in thobes and I had to go to meetings and I had to talk in a certain way and I had to behave in a certain way. And I was, I think, 35 at the time or 34. And I felt like, okay, half of my life has gone by and I don't feel like I accomplished anything. I, I remember the, the one question I asked myself that made me resign and leave architecture behind was like, if I died right now and at the time, and I'm standing in front of God and God was like, okay, Amar, I created you into this world, how did you make this world better? I had no answer. And I felt like I needed to find that answer.
0: Ammar's soul-searching coincided with his wife getting offered funding for her PhD from KAUST, the King Abdulaziz University for Science and Technology. That meant they had three years financially covered as a family while she pursued her PhD. And so Ammar had an opportunity to try and find the answer to how he could make the world better. So he quit architecture and started searching.
1: Did you, had you kind of forgotten about the puppeteering
2: dream or or was it something that you still
1: thought about?
0: That's producer Alex Atak. And
1: I never thought it was an option. I never thought puppeteering was an option because we didn't have any television production in Saudi. And it was important for me to work in Saudi because, you know, that's where you're from, where where your family are.
0: He focused on taking care of the kids and did some graphic design work on the side with a friend. And then on a family trip to New York, he stopped into that same toy store where he had made his first two puppets.
1: I made more puppets. I made one to a scientist and I made a female puppet and a monster puppet. Came back, it's like, okay, now I have, you know, a cast.
0: Now, of course, he wasn't entirely sure where puppeteering would lead him, but he got this idea to start his own puppet show on YouTube.
1: And then when I was working on the idea of the show... Iftahai Simpson advertised that they were looking for puppeteers. And I felt like, oh, this is why I resigned. And this is, you know, this is the grander plan that I never saw coming. Because I nobody knew that Iftahai Simpson was coming back.
0: After being off the air for more than 25 years since the Gulf War, Iftahai Simpson was coming back to the Arab world. I think it was because it took many years for
3: the reconciliation between Kuwait and Iraq, which was the main reason that it didn't come back. This is Dr. Cairo again. There were people at Sesame Street who were, you know, wise enough um, to say, hey, let's look at this. And then you had people that were in the Gulf that were also saying, you know, why aren't we doing more for early childhood education? And uh, that's how it started. So we actually spent like two years up until 2012 doing the research and uh, developing coalitions and partnerships with everyone until we were able to say, okay, we're ready to develop a curriculum.
1: So uh, I, I felt I felt like, okay, this is why all of this happened. And how many Arab puppeteers can there be? So I'm sure that they're going to give me a job.
0: He shot a video of himself performing with the puppets he'd been practicing with and sent it off to Iftah Simson pretty confidently. And he waited to hear her back. And he waited. And then one day he was scrolling through social media and...
1: I saw a post from Iftah Simson that they chose their puppeteers. And that's when I really knew that I wasn't one of them. So when that happened I felt devastated but at the same time my reaction was you know what these puppets I'm using are toy puppets so they don't they're not very flexible and you can't really manipulate it to look alive. So what I did was I said you know what I'm gonna build my own puppet I'm gonna learn how to build a puppet and make a proper show and I don't need I went and bought some stuff, went to the bookstores and stuff and bought other stuff that I felt like I needed to build a puppet. Fur, blankets, anything that had foam rubber in it, glue, sewing kit, plastic spoons. I made the eyes out of a pair of spoons. I made the head out of foam, foam rubber that was inside like a diaper changing mat. It was like anything i was looking for anything because we don't have a lot of supply, like puppet building supplies so i had to be macgyver and try to figure it out at at one point my youngest saria he was like dad aren't you supposed to be the one at work and mom's supposed to be the one at home and i took this as an opportunity to tell him like no nobody said that women should be at home and men should be working i mean she she also had to go through a lot of stuff people questioning why she's allowing her husband to do this. And point blank, just asking her, how did you, why are you allowing this to happen? It's like your husband staying at home and doing nothing.
0: Ammar steeped himself in the puppeteering world. He was watching tutorials online, reading articles, learning as much as he could. He spent three weeks building his first puppet. Which I called Afrut. Afrut, like rascal.
1: Yeah, the idea was just to put him in situations that I want to... Address that people here do that are not ideal. So, people cutting lines, people texting and driving, people throwing garbage in the street.
0: After he was done, he shot a video with it and put it up on YouTube.
1: And it got 200,000 hits. Afro just blew up. I mean, this is show business. It's like you work hard on something and it doesn't work, and sometimes you just do something as a goof and everybody likes it. Uh, like that. After that,
4: <laughs> Ammar and Afrut
0: were suddenly being asked to do comedy club nights, commercial deals around Saudi. Did a lot of ads on
1: Facebook and YouTube and Instagram for companies.
0: And he took every opportunity he could get.
1: Just to show my skills as a puppeteer.
0: Then in 2014, after Iftah Simsim had been on the air for a year, things started to come together for Ammar. First, he met one of the show's actors at a charity event he participated in with Afrut, and the two became friends. So Ammar asked him if he could get a meeting with the Iftah Sim Sim team just to talk, to get to know them. And the managing director, Dr. Cairo, came back and said, "Uh, yeah, we know Ammar, we follow his show.
1: He sent me uh, a message and told me that I sent them and they would love to meet you and everything. So now I was like 70% nervous. It's like, oh, I have to meet them now and I have to really make a good impression and whatnot. And and I went there and I go up and I go inside the office and you see the pictures of the Muppets. And now I'm like 100% nervous. And now I sit down and they're like, okay, we're just going to gather everybody and going to come. So I put I take fruit out, put him in my hand, and I'm like 200% nervous. <laughs> And they come in and it's like the whole office, there were like maybe eight people. And everybody was in that meeting room just looking at me. I just had Afrut in my hand and I was talking with the puppet. And um, they were laughing and they were excited and everything. But we finished the meeting. It wasn't a long meeting. I was I was feeling happy and feeling nervous. I don't know if they will hire me or not.
0: He was going back to Dubai that night, and as he was driving from Abu Dhabi...
1: The managing director who I just met with called me back and said, you know what, Um, our CEO would like to meet you. So can you meet on Friday, which was like two days later.
0: So he flies back to Abu Dhabi from Jeddah the following Friday. And after another interview with higher execs, including Dr. Cairo this time, they basically said, you're in. We want you to join our puppeteers for Iftah Sim Sim.
1: It was like a lot of different emotions just you know you growing up never really expecting that you can be that character that you grew up watching and you get to be that person or be that character and i got to be that
0: in the months that followed before he started working with iftah Sim, he practiced his characters diligently
1: i was just listening to videos of that character trying to get the voice right and get the character right and I had to take some of these videos, turn them to audio and put them in my car. So I'm just driving back and forth anywhere I'm going. I have his videos on with songs and and sketches and stuff and just mimicking the voice just as I'm going, just to get it right. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like for we have a growly type of character, which is Cookie Monster or in, in Arabic, it's khaki and Cookie Monster talks like this and he likes me like cookie. So I cannot explain what happened in my throats for that voice to come out. And then we have a character who's Count von Count, which is uh, like uh, a parody of Count Dracula. And he talks like this. Ah, 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 ah. And Gargur or Grover, he talks like this, which is a different voice, a little bit, and, and he has an accent. But in Arabic, he loses
0: that accent. <laughs> So even after being accepted by the team in Abu Dhabi, in order to be a puppeteer for Iftahi Simsim, he had to be approved by the Sesame Street team from the U.S. They
1: have a certain way of doing it, and we have to learn the same method.
0: And so you you use only, and forgive me, I know nothing about this, you use only your hands and they're on sticks. And so when you manipulate the the puppet, ha, like, is there, like, I'm are there, like, tiny little sticks to manipulate, like, his eyes? Like, how?
1: Well, you have, no, no, you have sticks to manipulate the hands only. And I stick my hand through the puppet and and manipulate his head and mouth. And if he's gonna look right, my hand goes right. If he's looking left, my hand goes left and so on. You have to learn how to make the puppet breathes and how to be angry and how to shout and how to walk slowly and how to, you know, there's a lot of different techniques that they teach you. It's really physical.
0: And here's some the some trivia that I did not know. Puppeteers have to do all of this at the same time while voicing their characters.
1: It's live and even the voices. So you have to manipulate the character and do the voice at the same time. It's one take. So you're mic'd up. You have the character in the air in front of the camera. You're underneath the camera and you have to do the whole scene.
0: That's crazy. Oh, my God. Okay. And then what, what so you so you go through all of this intense training, you're driving around Jeddah listening to the voice of Grover and then translating it over to who Garguru is gonna be and you do this for, for six months before you actually shoot. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I was just super excited and I didn't want to mess it up. So I, I yeah, I, I trained a lot. But yes, I mean and and the funny thing is all those years growing up watching The Muppets and watching Sesame Street, um, and I joke with my mom right now, it's like I used to watch it when I was supposed to be studying, and she's like, you know, this is not going to benefit you in life. You you need to study. And now I grew up, and every single second I spent watching Sesame Street was beneficial to me.
0: What was What was the experience the first day that you actually recorded for a show? as gargur. Oh, I was I was
1: super nervous until this day I hate watching that episode because I see all the mistakes and the nervousness. But I did have my parents come over. I really wanted them to come over to see me in action and just doing this and and my mom always wanted to to be on set of of The or Sesame Street, so it was it was just like just fun, just fun for us to be there and just to have them there at least with me for 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 one day, just just to be there and just see this, see what all those years before it, like me not knowing what's going on, and honestly, also them supporting me even when I like this adult with kids and a wife leaving his job and sitting at home sewing together fabric and and, and doing some crazy stuff and, and they were still supportive I don't know how to explain it but it's like you feel that you are you feel like you're responsible or somewhat responsible in shaping you know future generations so years and years from now when we're not even here. Whatever it is that we do in media, it lives on for long periods of time. So in a sense, it's, it's I feel happy because I do get to contribute. I do get to be somebody who made a difference in this life. And this is something, one of the people I admire in, in life in general is Jim Henson, and he's the guy who did who created the Muppets and and the Muppet Show and did the puppets on, on, on Sesame Street. And his hope was in when he wrote his will and everything, is like he wanted to leave this world a little bit better than it was before he was, you know, there. And and I truly believe that. I believe like if, if I can do that, I I feel like I have accomplished what it is that I was created to do.
0: Iftahi Simsim is estimated to reach around 45 million viewers across the region now, with even more online and through their live shows. To get a sense of this, we asked producer Alexander Chavez to speak to some kids about the show. Dana, how old are you? Five. Five. And Dana, do you watch Iftahi Simsim on TV? Yes. And who is your favorite character in the show? In the school? In the show.
2: Shams. man. افتح يا the والحروف. the names, and the هذا اسمه
4: the best part أنا أحبه. إيش
2: ماذا؟ So what songs
3: do you
2: like from the show?
0: Aside from being totally adorable, it was so clear that these kids were accessing this whole new world through the show that Cairo and Ammar helped make, and that is no small thing.
2: Our our home then was in Highland Park, Illinois.
0: This is Michael Davis again, the author of that Sesame Street history book.
2: My, my daughters would sit next to me on the couch and we'd have cereal and we'd have Sesame Street on. And it was a golden period in my life. I, I, I loved it when my kids were that age and I loved watching Sesame Street together with them. And I think that we all gained from it. And I think it all boils down to this. A group of people gave a damn. They wanted to make the world a better place. They gave a damn.
0: This episode was produced by myself, Hibba Fisher, and Alex Atak, with help from Alexandra Chavez and editorial support from Dana Balut. Sound design by Mohammed Khreizat. Thank you to everybody who sent us their memories of Ifta Sim, Sim Badr al-Farsi, Latayn al-Farsi, Liliani Yasser, Saleh al Reem Ghazal, Hayat Abdel sahib and Lina Barnawi. Thank you also to Cole Dillasharko for helping us record Michael's interview. Michael Davis's book, which chronicles the story of Sesame Street, is called Street Gang. To see behind-the-scenes photos and videos of Ammar and the rest of the Iftahi Simsim team, head over to our Instagram at Kerning Cultures. There'll also be some footage on our website at kerningcultures.com. So as a little bonus, we asked you what Iftahi Simsim meant to you, what you remember from watching the show growing up. This is what you told us.
4: The opening song, of course. I mean, that motto syllable in it is, um, is something. I mean, whenever I listen to it, I feel very nostalgic, and um, I, I keep humming it. I mean, it goes like, la, "la la 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 la." It's it's very sticky. I really love it. To me, if the hell sim is all about being yourself, I remember reading a couple of years back that Nauman, is a camel. And I was pretty surprised. I mean, how come I never asked myself what snowman is? But then I realized that he never let me because he defined himself to me. And that what we need to do to know ourselves very well and to define ourselves, not to be defined. The other thing is ask as many questions as you want. I mean, I don't remember a single episode where characters stop asking.
3: Like I learned to dance by watching Grover dance to uh, ABC, but they made it into Arabic. Alif, ba, ta, you know, so it's kind of funny in Arabic alphabet dance. The life lessons learned from Iftahiya Simpson is to accept people uh, as they are and to embrace differences and to always seek knowledge. Like the underlying message was that uh, education is fun and knowledge is fun. It's not boring and it's uh, unlimited. And that's what the
4: whole programme was about. It's referring to knowledge as hidden treasure and it's about reaching that hidden treasure. So it's if the